This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. For more information, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. We have discussed ad nauseum about the problems of college education, the cost, the low numbers of students with a degree, and more. But the problems continue, and unfortunately, not enough real solutions exist. Sarah Goldrick-Robb is a professor of higher education policy and sociology at Temple University. She's the author of the book, Paying the Price, which followed the college careers of 3,000 students over a six-year period. Some of the things she and her researchers found out were quite honestly, staggering. And she joins us here in the studio right now. Nice to meet you. Thank you for coming over. Thanks for having me. Thank you. 3,000 students over a six-year period. And some of the things you found out were what? Well, we learned a lot, you know, and and particularly because we didn't meet these people just one time. We followed them repeatedly over time, and we surveyed them, and we looked at their records, their administrative records, and we talked to them. We learned a bunch of things. I mean, first, we learned how insanely broken the financial aid system is. You know, a lot of folks talk about the FAFSA. The FAFSA is a small American bureaucratic tragedy all its own, and it it gets attention, and it needs reform. But there are so many issues even after the FAFSA, including that students don't know that they have to refile that darn form year after year. Yeah. They don't know that they have to take a certain number of classes and get a certain number of grades and do it, you know, perform in a certain way for them to be able to keep the money year after year. And frankly, the other thing that they don't know is that the money that's delivered after the FAFSA is way short of what they will need to be in school. So that right. even people whose families make virtually nothing are faced with having to borrow and they're still short. And so they, they don't make it. It's staggering that we're here in 2016 and we need college education as as a way to, you know, to build our personal careers. Yet we have so many things that, that just it almost feels like you've got stuff that that has slipped through the, ca- the cracks time and time and time again. Yeah. I mean, look, we've made a huge mistake. We told people to go to college. That was the right thing to do. Right. We we you know, we prioritized education. That was the right thing to do. But we failed to pay attention to the financing system. Yeah. It's as if we just thought that someday, you know, everybody would go to college and we magically wouldn't have issues paying for it. Of course, we have issues paying for it. And it's, you know, from this lack of attention that we've gotten ourselves into this serious problem. I saw the interview you did with Trevor Noah, and you brought up something interesting in that, that we've got kids that are going to community college right now that really don't, they don't have home right mm-hmm. now. Yeah. How, how, how does that happen? Oh, it happens. It happens many different ways. One way that it happens is that you go to college and you think you're going to get enough money not only to cover your tuition and fees, your books and supplies, but your housing costs. And the numbers literally don't add up. And you say, well, I'm going to work even though I took the loans. I'm also going to work. But you can't get enough work. You know, the the employers out there today are not exactly kind to undergraduates. They don't pay well and they don't give them enough hours. So one way is you just the numbers didn't add up. Another way is that Frankly, you know, people from very low income families are going to college now at higher rates than before. So it may have been that they experienced homelessness when they were a high school student and they know the only way to prevent homelessness in the future is to go to college. So it's just that it keeps happening to them and we don't have any resources for them the way that we do when they're in high school. What about about the housing that is on some uh, campuses uh, in terms of uh, trying to set something up? 
to be able to help people out when they're in this type of situation. Yeah, we have to do much better. So, I mean, I think it'll probably surprise your listeners, though, to know that only 13 percent of undergraduates today live on campus. So for the most part, the campus residency is not the story. Most people are commuting to school and they live in their local areas. But if we stereotype them and say, well, they live with their families, so their families are paying their rent, we're flat out wrong. These days, families don't have enough money to support other adults living in their houses, and they often charge them rent. We need to create affordable housing in this country, and this is yet another reason why. 844-WHARTON is the number if you'd like to join in the conversation. 844-942-7866 is the number. We're talking with Sarah Goldrick-Rob, who's the author of the book, Paying the Price, College Costs, Financial Aid, and the Betrayal of the uh, American Dream. Again, 844-942-7866. Or if you'd like, you can't get to your phone, send us a comment via Twitter, either at BizRadio111 or my Twitter account, which is at DanLoney21. what are some of the other concerns that you have in terms of the, the college education system right now? Financial aid, obviously, is, is one that I think drives so many families crazy. But, I mean, there have to be many other things that are, that are just concerning to families right now. Yeah, well, I mean, I think one of the things is that we've prioritized this idea that you should be able to choose any kind of college you want. Well, we haven't done very much to ensure that the colleges that you can choose, including using taxpayer-funded you know, dollars, actually are good schools. So we have a lot of schools out there that, frankly, are not giving people an education that's worth anything in the labor market or Mm -hmm. any other place. And yet they're able to accept discounts and and financial aid and and student loans and all this sort of thing and pad their budgets with it and pay their CEOs well. That needs to stop. I mean, that's something where, you know, a consumer ought to be able to say, you know, if federal dollars are going to that place, I ought to be able to assume it's a decent place. For-profit schools? The for-profit schools. And then, you know, there are some private institutions that are not for profit as well that are not doing so well. We, we could raise some questions even about places like where we're sitting here today, you know, places with very big endowments yeah. that frankly are still charging a lot. I met a young man the other day who graduated from the Community College of Philadelphia. He's got no income. He's on disability. He went back to school at 35 years old. He got his associate's degree. He was in the honors program. He was a jur- you know journalism. He did all this great stuff. Yeah. He got into Penn. Penn sent him a bill. You know, for his first year of college, this guy who makes nothing in his own disability, he was offered a package of $42,000 a year. Okay, something yeah. is wrong yeah. here when you have an endowment like this. This is a great school. I went to this school. Yeah. But I think the alumni of places like this ought to be standing up and saying we can do better than this. Yeah. Uh, the other part to this, I, I think it's, it's very interesting, is that we have cases right now of kids going to school and I think we also need to really also look at the types of things we're teaching mm-hmm. in some cases. Mm-hmm. And because some of the, the the degrees that kids are going for don't match up with realistically what they need to be thinking about when they're out in the real world. Yeah, I think this is actually one of the ways in which the new economics of college are changing what college even means. We used to have the freedom, right, when we went to college to pick what we wanted to major in. And sometimes, frankly, there were people who majored in English and it taught them how to write. It taught them good things. And they went on to do really well in business. That freedom is gone now because of these college prices. Now we're going to have 18-year-olds having to ask themselves, what do I want to be for the rest of my life so that I get a degree that I can pay off these loans with. That's going to lead to a lot fewer people who frankly know how to write and do those things. And yeah. I think down the road, we're going to be very upset about it. I think the richness of the variety of kind of majors that students have engaged in in this country has been part of why this country has done so well. So where do you stand on, on the issue uh, of uh 
college affordability that's been out there in the in the political race uh, over the last several months uh, of trying to find a way to be able to, at some level, community college, whatever it might be, be able to provide free college education. Yeah, well, I've been working very hard on this. I don't think it's a pipe dream. I do think it's a lot more complicated to do it well okay. than people are letting on. The most important thing, though, is that we have a very serious conversation about what we're going to do, finally. Enough talking about it, right? It's time for action. And it's very disturbing that in the most recent debates, no mention of college affordability has been coming up. It seems yeah. like it might have disappeared from the radar. If, if, if the next president doesn't take this head on, that we're going to have a really serious problem. We're not going to be able to save our way out of this. No amount of college savings is going to be yeah. able to help these families today cover the bills for the little kids like those I have. Well, yeah, and I've got 10 and 7-year-old you know, mm -hmm. kids right now. And the fact that I work at the University of Pennsylvania, obviously, you know, there's a benefit for people that work at a university, mm -hmm. but but that doesn't, you know, that's so much the minority of people in this country that, you know, work 30, 40 years of their life and they have enough savings for themselves let alone trying to help put their kid through college. That's right. And by the way, very, very few universities actually do provide any benefits for their employees. Yeah. I mean, that's the other thing is there's been a huge change in universities. Most universities are using, you know, adjuncts and contingent labor. They're not providing them with these benefits. When the when the question comes about educational quality, that's the question. If you're going to send your kid to school and you're going to pay for it, you want to have faculty in there who are committed and able to spend time with your children, which means a move back to full-time faculty who who have something to count on yeah. so that you can have good teachers just like you have in K-12. In a good free college model, we wouldn't provide the money to make college free without stipulating that the college receiving that money would provide that kind of educational experience. Your comments are welcome at 844-WHARTON, 844-942-7866 is the number to give us a call. Or if you can't, send us a comment via Twitter, either at BizRadio111 or my Twitter account, which is at DanLoney21. I, I, I mentioned this with with authors from time to time, I think it's it's a, a, a very valid question in that when you do a a project like this, and there's obviously so much data that is coming your way, there's probably even some of the data that surprises you. Did you have a case like that when, when you I were I definitely done? did. I definitely did. And it happened fairly early on when we were going out to do these interviews with students. You know, I had these graduate students who were doing some of them. I did other interviews. One of my graduate students came back and she was really upset. And I said, what's going on? And she said, well, I asked the question we always ask, which is a really straightforward, open-ended question. How's it going? And yeah. the student, you know, how's it going in college, <laughs> right? And the student looked at her and she said, it's not going well. And she said, what's your biggest challenge? She said, eating. I don't have enough food to eat. When other students are eating in the classroom, it distracts me because I'm so hungry. I wish that I had enough to eat so I could focus on learning. This was Jeez. staggering to me. Jeez. I went, wait, that's not a textbook issue. That's not an iPod issue. Yeah. So we went out there. I mean, I have to admit, being a little skeptical, maybe she was one person. We've gone out there. I've done now about four studies with my team of this of this question, and this thing is happening. There's real food insecurity on our campuses, even while some schools are building sushi bars. So how do you correct that? I mean, I mean, 
I would think part of that is, in some respects, making it more readily available for students that don't have the resources. I mean, because you can't tell me that the, all of these universities and colleges that have their own uh, lunchrooms and, uh, you know, food that they're providing to the students are, you know, don't have enough. I mean, they certainly have to have enough. We certainly do have enough food in this country. It's just how we distribute it and how we price it. And I think that, look, we're sitting in the city of Philadelphia where every single kid in the city, whether or not their income deserves it, gets a free or reduced price lunch at yeah. school, gets a free lunch. We make sure they have milk. We make sure that they get to, they get fed. We don't do that when they get to college. If they transition from one of our city's high schools to the community college of Philadelphia from 17 to 18 years old, they get cut off. And we're surprised that they're not learning. So why is there is there this failure to connect one with the other? Uh, I I mean, do we do we just assume that, okay, once you're done high school, you can handle yourself. You're you you can, you know, run your own life. Well, perhaps. But I also think it's because the the average person still imagines the average college student as being somebody walking up and down an ivy colored, you know, an ivy covered uh, uh, a locust walk, essentially. Right. I think they tend to think of them as residential four year students with parents who are paying for things. That is not today's undergraduate. They're not even kids, frankly. Their average age is between 25 and 30 years. Years yeah. old when they start college. Yeah. They're mainly at community colleges and state universities. They these real life things continue to happen to them. Yeah. And and I don't think we need to say, you know, that's giving away anything. It's making a good investment so they get an education and they don't need our support after they do. Well, and obviously we we know that there are more and more people that are going out into the workforce or at least starting college and then going to get a job and then going back. My mom was mm-hmm. was somebody that, you know, worked in the banking industry for a while and then went back in her 50s and got her college degree. So, you know, that was the exception, you know, 40 years ago. Mm-hmm. It's become more the norm now. It has. And I think it's actually a great thing. This country gives second chances in a way that other countries don't. And we have made more progress in that way. We don't say to somebody, yeah, you're 30 years old and it hasn't happened for you. So your life is over. We open our doors. That's a great thing. But we have to actually resource it. This stuff doesn't come free. Is it a concern then for you as well that... Not only is this not really a topic that's brought up by the presidential candidates, but we have enough dysfunction in Washington, D.C. as it is already where this will just get, you know, passed around and and just bump from, you know, congressional office to congressional office and not really be, you know, be pushed forward. Well, I mean, to be honest, I'm less pessimistic than I used to be about this because we have made a ton of progress in the last couple of years. Okay. I mean, we saw a remarkable thing happen in January of 2015 when President Barack Obama got up there and put the words free and college together in a sentence. Yeah, that's, that's never true. happened. That's right. Who yeah. thought that was going to happen? Not me. And I actually brought a plan to do that. Yeah. So we're also talking about living expenses in a way that we never have. We're talking about the fact that the rules for getting food stamps don't align with the rules for being in college. We're having a much more advanced conversation today than we were even two years ago. You know, it took 80 years to get free public high school. I think our pace of progress is actually pretty good. (laughs) And I think what's important is that we not only focus on things we can get done tomorrow, it's very short-term thinking. Some of us at least need to be engaged in the long-term battle. So I'm 50 years of age. Is it your assumption then that sometime maybe before I die, if I live to be 85, 90 years of age, that we could have the concept of a free college somewhere in this country? Yes, I actually think that before you cease to be here, you will you will witness free community college. 
I do. I don't know that you will get a free public university, bachelor's degree, anything like that. Right. But I think in the next 20, 25 years at the most, we will see free public community college but restored. But there, there are countries that believe that college education as free as a component is something that benefits their economy, and it ends up being a, an important piece to how that country runs its day-to-day operations. It is, although I, I will admit that most of those countries do things pretty differently than we do. And one of those things is they don't let everybody go to college. Right. Right. So they gatekeep a lot at the secondary level. Germany does this in spades. Right. So I think the tricky part here is that we want to send lots of people to college from all walks of life. We don't want to have discrimination in who gets to go to college and we want it to be really affordable. This is something we can do, but we have to give up something. And I'm not actually saying money. I'm saying maybe, for example, just as in K-12 education, maybe we just pay for the public sector. That's a discussion we've okay. never had. Okay. Maybe we need to have it. Maybe we need to focus our resources on what we can afford to do right. and stop prioritizing doing all the things while leaving everybody short. Problem is, though, and, and tell me if I'm wrong on this, that we've got so many public institutions across this country. That, that's, a, that's a lot of money to be talking about. You know what, though? If you take all the money we're spending on the private institutions... Okay. You know, this is sacrilege. It gets people really angry. But okay. I think we need to look, take a hard look and say, look, you know, can we afford to keep doing this where we will finance any institution a student has ever wanted to go to? Yeah. We'll give them a voucher and take that voucher to that school, even though the taxpayers are financing things that are not necessarily paying off. When this system began, we didn't have all those public institutions. We really needed those private institutions. Right. This is a completely different situation today. It is the I, I, I obviously here it is, and, and a lot of institutions around the country it is. It is the level of education being provided in some of them, as you said before, it's not good enough. But for the majority of them, it is quality education and people are getting a, a good background heading into the real world. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. And it's especially true when they get the resources they need to succeed. So right. people can say, I can't get my classes at my local community college. All right. But when you pass a bond referendum and you stop underfunding the college and you actually finance the college, yeah. people do get the classes they need. This is a pretty straightforward thing. If we've put the money that was supposed to be spent in the public sector into the public sector, we would have better completion. How much will potentially online learning be a benefit to this going forward? You know, I think of online learning as primarily benefiting the people who are pretty advanced already in their education. So I would like to see it as an option for people to complete the last year of their bachelor's degree, for example. Maybe more graduate education should be moved online. But people are quite vulnerable during that first couple of years of higher education, especially if they've been out of school for a while. They really do need that face-to-face instruction, or at the very least, a hybrid model that still emphasizes making a connection with your teacher. Teachers matter. And they matter a ton to students. So I would hate to see us fool ourselves into thinking that online is going to replace face-to-face instruction. Great to have you here today. Thank you very much for coming. Yeah, thanks for having me. The book, by the way, is Pay the Price. Sarah Goldrick, Rob, the author. Uh, It is available in bookstores and uh, online right now as well. Pick it up. It's a a really, uh, really interesting look at uh, education here in uh, 2016 and beyond. For more business news and analysis from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.com. Dot edu.